But it's great to see everybody. We'll begin with prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that we have freedom to study it together. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at the book of Proverbs, you would give us wisdom to live rightly here and now, but also for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I did give a lesson last time, but I don't know how many people had the opportunity to copy that down. But what we're going to be looking at today in Proverbs chapter 2 is how wisdom does save us from two deadly temptations. And these are temptations that you and I will see in the text are common. Yes, they can be for everyone, but they're common to young people, especially young men. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on here today. Now, I want to show the assignment that I handed out and give people an opportunity to chime in. And I just gave four questions that we're going to be answering through the text. And the first question of Proverbs 2, 1 through 22 was the question, what two temptations are common to young people, and again, especially common to young men, according to this text? Did anybody discern that from their reading? Does anyone want to take a stab at that? Yes, Eric Fredrickson in the back. And phrase it in the form of a question like Jeopardy. (laughs) What is... Yeah, we just uh, studied this on the way in, so I, I'm not going to try to claim oh, sure, any virtue. Sure. <laughs> but, That's a uh, long drive, yeah. But I think it, it's uh, uh, sexual sin and also just being influenced by your peer group. Amen. I think that's what it was. That's right. Well said. And specifically, that the second one, you're absolutely right, the uh, immorality of the being with the harlot, so sexual immorality for the young man, that's number one. And number two, the pressure of the peer group specifically probably to be a criminal and to go after the innocent. And so I, I think you're exactly right. That connects back to the first chapter where he warns about shedding innocent blood. So absolutely, I think those are the two. So the young man is tempted as a young man to have women other than a wife in a physical way. And number two, to join the criminal element and get money in an immoral manner. Those are the two sins that wisdom, the wisdom from God, will prevent the young man from stumbling into and ultimately perishing. Yes, Brian. That's kind of a, a continuation from Proverbs 1. Exactly. Okay. Absolutely. That, and we'll see that. I'll actually make those references, but you're exactly right. So it's building off of that one particular sin the sin of wanting to ambush the innocent in order to take their money. Absolutely. So, that very. oh yes, Cladoris. Good, and we need to get you a, a microphone so we get you on tape. There's Carly. Thanks, Carly. Where? where? Uh, this is Cladoris right here. Oh, here we go. Sorry. Sorry. I was just looking at verse 13, and yes. it, it seems like... Um, he walked from those abandoned the right ways to walk in the way of darkness. So would that mean that he was a believer? Was that apostate? I'm sorry. Let me see here. Um, oops, Ver- I hit the wrong button. Verse 13, button. could that be um, that he started walking from and then he walked in darkness? From those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Yeah, so that would be, wisdom would deliver us from following a man who d- abandons the right path 
to go down the wrong path. So that wouldn't be apostate then? He wasn't... You know, um, you, you, you technically it would be, but an apostate, remember, even the technical definition of an apostate would be one who really never believed. Okay. Um, so they appeared to believe, and a great passage that we see evidence of that is found in Second Peter. Do you remember Peter likens them to dogs and to sows who go back to the mire and go back to their vomit? And the point of the parable is they act like they really were. So in other words, anybody ever hear the term phenomenological? I know that's a goofy term, but phenomenon has to do with the way things appear. So, for example, when you listen to your newscast, the weather forecaster will say the, the sunrise tomorrow is going to be 7.32 a.m. Well, how many people call the TV station and say, don't you know that the earth is rotating and that the sun isn't moving around the earth, but rather the earth is, you know, what are you, a geocentrist? You don't, you don't criticize him because he's talking about the way it appears to us. That's phenomenological language. It appears that the sun is rising, even though we know it's the earth rotating. In the same way, what the Apostle Peter is saying is it appears that these people were believers, but their true doctrine and their true deeds later in life reveal what they truly were, that they were the unregenerate, no different than the dogs and the sows, the pigs, the unclean animals that they really were. So in the same way, in the book of Proverbs, the apostate was one who really never believed. Yep, and so you're right, Cladoris, they are trying to lead the young man down the path of destruction. Absolutely. So very good, very good catch there. I like that. Let's see, let's go to the, anybody else on that? Or I can go to the second question. What is being personified in this passage, and what does it mean? There is a little bit more personification, and we've been kind of working through that, because that's a little tricky when you see that in the book of Proverbs, Sometimes it seems it's as if it's a person because it's being personified. But does anybody remember what was being personified in this section? It was particularly found, I think, in verse 11. And that was both, um, if nobody has it, it was both discretion and understanding. The idea with discretion and understanding would guard the believer who had wisdom. Okay, so the idea is discretion and understanding are being personified as if if you come to faith in Christ, if you come to knowledge of God's word and in wisdom, you're going to be guarded in having discretion and understanding. You're not going to lash out. You're not going to go shed innocent blood as the unregenerate often do as young people. You're going to be one who has discretion. You're not going to go after the harlot you're going to have discretion, that sort of idea. Yeah, Norm. Well, wouldn't wisdom in, uh, incorporate both of those things? Exactly. Wisdom, well said. So, uh, I don't know, I'd put wisdom down, but, but you're more precise. No, no, no. Think? In fact, I was going to actually drive to that point. You're exactly right. I think wisdom encompasses both. So, wisdom is just being personified in just different ways. Yep, so absolutely, that would be the overarching umbrella term for all of it, would be wisdom is being personified, absolutely. And so that's one thing you'll see throughout the book of Proverbs is wisdom is often personified as crying out to those who don't have any to come and listen, to come and heed the warnings of God. Yeah, Brian. This is just an opinion. I'm 
I'd like from you. Do you, you hear people a lot say in today's world yeah. that the, the, the way uh, the media is and access to all this and that, that it's, it's harder uh, uh, for young people to maybe take the right path. But do you, do you believe that it was always the same, that those temptations, uh, do you think they're, they're, more, uh, they're stronger in these days, or do you think it's always been the same? You know, in, on the one hand, we have to affirm that the human sin nature has always been the same. So the struggles have always been the same, and the battle has always been in the mind. And so even if you're apart from, quote-unquote, temptation of the culture, you still sin within your mind. And that's one of Jesus' point in Mark 7, where he says the real battle comes from within. It's not the outside that defiles the man. The battle's for the mind. But saying that, I think we have to affirm that, you know, some of the temptations to our culture perhaps um, are just more readily available. You know, you get more access to uh, the Internet and different uh, problems that are associated with that or TV or what have you. So perhaps it's just you can get enticed quicker you know, but the sin nature is always the same, and so the battle is always the same, and that's why these principles in the scriptures are really timeless, because the issues are really always the same. You know, every heresy. Bob was just talking to me before the message this morning, and he was talking about postmillennialism—the idea that we will build the kingdom. And if you think about it, in every generation, a form of postmillennialism is just being recycled, uh, whether it's. The Babylonians, remember the king of Babylon boasts that his kingdom is going to last forever. Adolf Hitler boasts that he's going to have a thousand-year Reich. Um, We were going to have the city on the hill as Americans. By the way, um, it depends how you take that. But the point is there's always a millennial view that we're going to build the kingdom here and now. Why? Because humans want to build the kingdom by works rather than relying upon Christ and his grace. And so you, you see these timeless battles are always with us no matter what generation. And that's why Proverbs will never be outdated. Yeah, so good point. That's a, that's a good thing to think about. Now, um, let's see. Yes, yeah, so good job, Norm. You summarized wisdom as being personified. Number three, let's look at that one. What are the two differing paths one could take? And this is something you're going to see throughout the book of Proverbs, and it'll always mean something to you if you take this away. That, And I'll just summarize. In the book of Proverbs, there's only two ways the way of the fool, or the way of the wise. Okay? And that's why that passage we're going to be studying when we get to it, where it says, train up a child in his way, and when he gets older, he will not depart from it. If you understand in Proverbs that there's only two ways, and it's the child's way, in the book of Proverbs, the child's way is the way of the fool. They're synonymous. So do you see then that radically changes the understanding of that text? It's not the promise that, hey, if your son has an inclination to mathematics and you train him in that, he's going to remain a mathematician, he's going to thrive. That's not the promise. The promise is he is a fool by nature because we're all born dead sinners in Adam. And unless by the scriptures he is broken from that by God's work, he's going to go down the way of the fool. Okay, so only two paths, the way of the fool and the way of the wise. The way of the fool goes the way of the perdition, and the way of the wise goes to salvation. By the way, I got to... Oh, I'm sorry, Bob, go ahead. Uh, What passage are you referencing? Um, Does anybody remember the specific reference to... It's in uh, Proverbs, it's in the 20s, um, where it says, train up a child in the way he should go. People will find it on your computer. It's the 26th. We've heard that 
Yeah. For 30 years. I just don't have the specific reference right. in front of me. Yeah. And it was always, if you train them right, yep. then that's how it's going to be. But his way is actually the way of the fool. Yes, exactly. It totally changes the meaning. Absolutely. And so one of the great things that uh, we can know is... The Holy Spirit-inspired author determines the meaning, not the reader. Amen. Well said. Yeah. Oh, 22.6. I knew there was a 22, six. 22.6. Thank you. So 22.6, train up a child. In, in the way your version will read it in English, it'll say, train up, in the, train up the child in the way he should go. But what's interesting is that phrase, the way he should go, it literally is in the Hebrew... It's train up a child in his way. So there's what's called a third-person masculine pronominal suffix. And what that suffix means is it's not, is it's his way, right? Okay, so it's not the way he should go. It's literally his way. It's a possessive. It's like, it's, um, it's, it's my way or, the, you know, their way. It's, no, it's his way, the child's way. And so because it's the child's way, we know from the rest of Proverbs that the way of the child is synonymous with the way of the fool. And so it radically changes our understanding of the text. I've heard that text used in a lot of Christian schools. And the idea is that if you train them up in the way they should go, well, what's the way they should go? Well, learning the Lord, and um, that's fine. But they, well, oftentimes people will take it to mean their natural bent. They're good at a certain skill. And so educators, Christian educators, will use that verse to try to say, hey, if you find the natural bent of the student, train them up in that way. And they'll, if it's being an electrician, they'll be an electrician the rest of their life. That's not what the passage is promising. So, yes, Rich. I had a, along these same lines, I had a neighbor that she said about her husband. She goes, oh, my husband would make a great Christian because he's such a nice guy. Oh. And the point is, is that the natural man is always the fool, no matter how great his temperament is, no yeah. matter how nice and kind and generous. If he doesn't have Christ, he's a natural fool. Yeah, amen. Well said, Rich. And oftentimes, niceness can be a phenomenological phenomenon as well. That's a redundancy, I guess, but it can just appear that way. Um, I uh, remember before I was a believer, I could be nice for large portions of time, but at some point the real man would break out, right? And so niceness in and of itself is no determiner whether one is regenerate. But, um, yeah, very good point. That's, yeah, yeah, I second that. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Yeah, amen. But, yeah, very good point, Rich. Could, could you explain a little yes. bit more about that verse uh, in Proverbs, or train up a Child, why would you want to train him up in the bad way? I, I don't understand that. Yeah, it's actually a threat. It's if you train up a child in his way, and he will not depart from it. So what it is is a promise oh, it's a, it's that if you're going to allow him to go out in his own way, he's not going to depart from it when he's older. So in other words, if you allow him to go the way of the fool, if you train him up in that way, he's not going to depart from it. So it's a so it's a warning not to allow them to remain in the way of the fool, the way of the child. And uh, the one who alerted to me, I was doing Hebrew exegesis um, at Northwestern with a man uh, who's really a good scholar. His name is Jason DeRoshi. And every now and then you'll see him on um, videos. If anyone has logo software, he does some videos for them I've seen. Um, he sat under a man named Dwayne Garrett. And you'll see his name in a lot of commentaries in different Hebrew texts. In fact, one of the Proverbs commentaries... Uh, is done by Dwayne Garrett. But anyway, they're the ones who caught that. 
and they um, talked about the grammar of that passage. And so that's how I learned it was actually in seminary to say, hey, that's a really good reading of the text. That makes sense. But it's in keeping with the wider narrative of the text. There's two ways, way of the fool, the way of the wise. Yes, Bob. Well, the, the other part of that is that when you uh, have a deterministic view of things, yes. then you take it the other way and you look out there and see what different people are like who were raised by parents. Yeah. And you blame the parents because they didn't do it right. Right. But uh, I was just looking for a book. I found it this morning by uh, Schlossberg. It's called Idols for Destruction. Yeah. I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it. So I thought, well, I'll go get it on Amazon. Well, it went up in price. Oh. But I read it back in the 80s, so I found it. I got my flashlight, and I found it. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things he dealt with was determinism. Yeah. And we're always looking for somebody to blame for whatever goes on. Yes. And so uh, Schlossberg had a great book about that, and I read it back in the 80s. Wow. And we just need to get a biblical view yeah. of the, number one, it's in nature. Yeah. Nobody comes into the world as a Christian. Right. We come into the world dead in Adam. Yeah, amen. I'm going to talk about that in my sermon. And then... We need to understand the gospel is not about who, who said that, Rich? Somebody be a good Christian? Yeah. I remember when I was going to seminary, I was listening to a Christian radio station. Yeah. Does anybody remember when Bob Dylan supposedly was converted? No. <laughs> it, I'm the only one who remembers that. <laughs> you remember that? Touched? And then, um, then he went back the other way. Hmm. I think I'm right about this. And the Christian broadcaster said, God just caught a big fish oh. <laughs> concerning this Dylan. And I thought, well, a big fish. Why would his conversion, if it was true, be more important than somebody's converted who nobody ever heard of? Right, right. Now, I, I think he had an album called Touched. Is that right? I but then the next one, he was back to something else. So there are no big fish. There are only sinners. That's my right, point. Right, right. Amen. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. What's that, Rich? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking of one of the Dylan songs, uh, Like a Rolling Stone. But he should have rewritten one, God Rolled Away the Stone, right? So maybe he could... Write that anew. But yeah, it's a very interesting, very good point. And one thing that we have to affirm from the book of Proverbs, remember, there are general promises. They're not absolute assurity. So for example, if you're a parent and you, in a godly way, give the scriptures and teach them to your child, it doesn't guarantee regeneration. That's up to the Lord. And one of the passages we looked at last week that affirms that is, remember in John 3, verse, uh, it was 3, we looked at John 3, 3 through 8. In verse 8, Jesus talks about the work of the Spirit is like the wind. Well, you and I can't control what the wind does, nor can we control the regeneration by the Spirit. So the best a Christian parent can do, a believer, is to put their children in the arena in which they will hear the Word of God taught. And then it's God who does the work. And so that's a great point that Bob is bringing up, is God is the one who has to do the work. And so, again, the book of Proverbs isn't given an absolute assurances in any of the promises. They're always generalities. But remember what I said. Without generalities, you can't have wisdom. 
Let me give an example of that. Generally, it's a good idea to wear a seatbelt when you're driving. However, you'll hear someone say, well, wait a minute, if you're out on the ice and you're driving at a Minnetonk and you break through and you have your seatbelt on, well, then it'll take you longer to get out of the vehicle and you'll probably die and you'll drown, so I'm not wearing my seatbelt. Well, that's a very specific example. But generally speaking, it's better to wear your seatbelt. So you're dealing with generalities. That's the way it is in the book of Proverbs. You can always come up with an exception, but it's dealing with the general reality. If you're a decent citizen, you don't harm people. That is, you don't try to take their money maliciously. Life goes better for you. That's the wisdom that this godly father is teaching his son in the book of Proverbs. And again, I think it originates with Solomon to his children, but it can be for any godly parent who wants to raise their child up. So again, general promises. Okay, so the two different paths. And what about number four? What will keep the young on the righteous path? What is it that keeps them on the righteous path? Did anybody detect that in the scriptures? And it kind of goes back to what... Oh, I'm sorry, Cladoris has got it. Um, Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his ways pure? By keeping your word. Amen. It's the word of God, isn't it? Absolutely. And so, yes, we have this general principle. Keeping the word of God will keep us from that, right? From the error, the way of error and the way of destruction. But ultimately, it's God who enables us to even keep the word. And so when we put all of our theology together, absolutely, it's God who is the one who, keeping us in his word, we persevere. So all of that's tied to the wisdom. Wisdom literature is designed to help us keep off the path that leads to destruction. So with that, let me go to an outline here of this text. What's interesting is there's what's called a protesis apotesis construction. If this, then that. That's the construction of this whole section. So you see the if portion is in verses 1 through 4. If the child will do this, then you're left hanging for the then. Okay, so you'll see if, I think, four different times. If this, if this, if this. Well, then the apotesis comes in two sections. Verses 5 through 11, you have an apotesis, and then you have the promise of protection. Verses 12 through 19. If, if the child will go after the ways of righteousness, then they will be protected from these various threats. Then you have a summary in verses 20 through 22, that if a son or daughter will have wisdom, they'll be protected from perdition. So that's the, the, and I'll show you these connections as we go. So let's begin in verses 1 through 4. Notice the ifs. There's actually three of them, I guess, here. Proverbs 2, 1 through 4, Solomon wrote, he said, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding... Notice verse 4, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures. And then we're going to go on to the promises. But notice the ifs. Three of them. Oops, I'll pull up my pointer. I think you see them in red there. So this is im. It's actually there in the Hebrew. Im, if, if, if. Now, one of the questions we have to ask, I think, here first is who is the father? Because notice it says my son. 
Does anyone want to take a stab at who the Father is in this section? And I think there's three options. You can say it's the Heavenly Father, it's God. It's an earthly Father. Or could it be it's wisdom personified again? Now, I'll just, if you don't want to take a stab, I think it's a, a real person. I think it's a human being implied is this father who's earthly is teaching the heavenly father's wisdom. So they're a person who has the word of God within them. So my son is generic for any child, or it could be a, a son or a daughter for that matter, but one who will listen, right? And so the father, I think, is probably an earthly father, but implied they're endowed with the wisdom that comes from God's word. Now, notice the three necessary things that are going to be for wisdom. The three necessary things, first of all, is that they have to dedicate themselves to really internalizing the word. Notice, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. Now, what this means is not just mere memorization, but memorization and conceptualization, if that's a term, to to have a concept of what God is saying. I know lots of people who have verses memorized, but conceptually they don't understand them. So what the scriptures call us always to do is to first understand what the scriptures are saying, but then certainly internalizing that and having a robust worldview from the Bible, that's what's being called for here. So that's number one, dedicated to internalizing the word of God, understanding what it says, and memorizing and whatever it takes to have the scriptures within you. Notice the second thing is there to dedicate themselves to seeking God's wisdom. I'm sorry, they have to have a desire for that. So notice it's make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to, to understanding. Notice down here, verse 4, seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures. There has to be a desire to learn the word of God. Now, that's one of the demarcations between the believer and the unbeliever. One thing the unbeliever does not have is a desire to understand the Word of God. So what changes a person and makes them one who formerly did not desire wisdom in the Word of God to desiring it? Well, that's something that the Holy Spirit does in regeneration. That's where the battle of the will comes into play. Um, Bob, you read the book, Bondage of the Will. And uh, maybe just explain for people what Luther was dealing with with Erasmus in that book. Yes, uh, I read that book and took a lot of notes, and I keep referring back to it. Yes. The battle at that time was whether humans have to cooperate with God and work together synergistically to ultimately, and you showed that last week with your yeah. A graphic view of how justification really doesn't happen in Rome. You go right. in circles. And Luther said, no, grace alone. And if the will is in bondage, and you can't just stir up the will right. so that somehow people ultimately find God, but it's a work of God's grace through the gospel, Amen. then you have the bondage of the will. Yes. Erasmus was teaching free will, make the right choices, things like that. And so that was a real issue. Yes. And the reason I studied that was interesting that many, many centuries later, Protestantism went back to... Erasmus. Erasmus. <laughs> okay, so now 
uh, a lot of uh, Protestant Christianity has more in common with Erasmus than the Reformation. Yeah, amen. Well said. And that, again, ties into the idea that the heresies are just recycled. Same heresies over and over. So think of the categories Bob's talking about. Luther holds to monergism, that God alone, mono, if you have a monoplane, you have one wing. If you have a biplane, you have two, I guess, but... <laughs> that doesn't tie into synergism, I guess, but mono meaning one. Monergism is there's one alone who changes you. That's God. God is the one who seeks for us. Synergism is that you and I synergistically work with God. The Bible teaches the former. It's monergism, that God, God alone is the one who seeks for us. And so that's really the question I want to ask here is, does anybody naturally desire or seek for God? And we see a clear answer in the scriptures from the Apostle Paul. And I want to hit that again because it's so central to our understanding the rest of the Bible. If we don't get this right, we're going to be led off into the tulips and other areas of our theology. So listen to... Well, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, tulips are not so bad. What, could, what would be bad? Yeah. Uh, thorns. Thistles. Yeah, buckthorn. There you go. Thank you. You're led off into the buckthorn. Yeah. Amen. So let's read what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 3, 9 through 12. He said, what then? Are we better than they? By the way, he's answering... He's answering the question, are the Jews better than the Gentiles? Listen to what he says. He says, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Let me stop there for just a moment. I want you to notice in bold that phrase, all under sin. The term under there is hupo. The term for sin is hamartia. Hupo hamartia. The reason that's an important phrase is that is the condition of every single person. Notice he's just laid it out. Jews and Greeks, that is Jews and Gentiles, in your natural default position are hupo hamartian. You're all under sin. We're all under bondage. That's what we are. That's our natural default position. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 7.14. Let me just show you how else this is rendered in our English versions. Turn your Bibles to Romans 7.14. Because I want to fill in what it is to be in bondage to sin or hupohamartia, being under sin, and to show that none of us can really seek after God or his wisdom. So then we know that it's a gift. It's a gift of God. And I think the book of Proverbs affirms that. So turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 7.14. And notice Paul is talking about the unregenerate state here. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Does everyone see the phrase bondage to sin? It's the same phrase that you have here, hupo homartian. It's it's literally you're under sin. So that's the unregenerate state in the book of Romans. You're under sin. You're in bondage. You can't free yourself. Right? Now, notice the result of this back to our text here in Romans 3.10. He gives examples. He says, as it is written. Now, he cites from Psalm 14. 1 through 3 in Psalm 50, or yeah, Psalm 53, 1 through 3. I wanted to say Isaiah 53 because it's so common to roll off my lips, but it's Psalm 53, 1 through 3 is synonymous with Psalm 14, 1 through 3. And he says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Let's just stop there for a moment. Notice he says, This is the Apostle Paul who speaks for Christ. The term for seek there is zeteo. He says there's, there's none who seeks after God. There's not one. And this is universal. It's Jew and Gentile because all are in bondage to sin. So if that's true, what do we say about the seeker-sensitive movement? Bob said that this passage should be the death knell to that movement, and he's exactly right. 
we shouldn't have a seeker-sensitive movement because the Apostle Paul who speaks for Christ says that there's none who seeks after him, not one. Verse 12, it says, All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So that's the bleak picture of humanity that's in bondage to sin. So the question then is, well, how can anyone seek after God? Well, of course, it's God who ends up seeking after us. Now, what's interesting is you will see commands in the scriptures that we are commanded to seek after God. But we're also commanded, remember, to be holy as God is holy. And how many think that they're just going to start tomorrow, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and they're going to do that on their own? No, we can't do that either. And so there are things that God does command that he knows human beings cannot do. But the inability is not God's fault. It's our moral problem. And ultimately, it's a problem of the heart. So let's make another fine distinction. Our inability is not something we call natural inability, but rather it's a moral inability. Natural inability would be God speaks Chinese, I only understand English. No, that's not what the scriptures are revealing. What the scripture reveals is I know what God is saying, but I don't like it. And one of the passages we see that very clearly is in John 3.19, where Jesus says the light came into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Truth be told, we're morally opposed to the gospel. So do you see then why God can still find fault? He commands us to do something that we don't want to do. It's not that they were incapable in the sense that he's asking us to bench press a thousand pounds and I can only do 275 and I'm just never going to get there and that, that's it, I'm just done. No, he's not asking us to do that. He's asking us simply to believe. By the way, a great passage that talks about this inability, turn your Bibles to Romans 10. I wasn't planning on going here. But this is a passage that Bob helped me see a number of years ago, and I think it's a very profound passage. By the way, that's one of the blessings with working with a great theologian. You end up learning things. <laughs> so thank you, Bob. <laughs> Let's see, Romans chapter 10. And I've got my large print Bible with me. That's why I'm not needing glasses. <laughs> yeah, I love the large print, right? And I'm looking for the spot in here. Oh, here it is. It's right in verse... Let's start in, let's start in verse 4. Yeah, I'm sorry. Let's start in verse 3. 10, 3. Let's just start there. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, he's talking about the Israelites, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Verse 4, he says, For Christ is the end. There's telos. Telos can mean the goal or the termination. In reality, it's both. Okay, so for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Now notice this is from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30. It says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss, some render it Sheol, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? Now let's stop there. What's the point of verses 6 through 7? 
What Paul is pointing out, as Moses did, is that God isn't asking you to do the impossible. He's not asking you to ascend into the heavens, which would be impossible physically, or to ascend down to Sheol. Moses originally wrote to get the law, but Paul just changes it to to be Christ-centered. Okay, so he's just doing a little play on the words. But the idea is God hasn't asked us to do something physically impossible, but what has he asked us to do? Notice he says in verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. And then in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What that passage is telling us in Romans 10 that we just read is that natural inability is not taught in Scripture. That somehow we don't have the ability to do something physically, as if, again, God is speaking Chinese and we only understand English. But rather, what Paul is pointing out, the issue is in the heart. So do you see then when God commands us to do things that we can't do, it's not because it's the impossible in the sense of of natural inability, but rather of moral inability. And that's why we're still culpable. We love our sins too much. And so regeneration happens when God changes that disposition by the Spirit, and he does it by seeking after us. And this is why, remember, even to his own disciples in John 15, 16, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Well, why? Because in their own inability, morally, they would never choose Christ. So he sought them. Jesus is the one who seeks and saves the lost. So if you see someone, for example, in First and Second Chronicles, oftentimes there will be a list of the kings, and the writer of First and Second Chronicles will say they sought the Lord or they did not seek the Lord. Understand behind that is ultimately the Lord's doing. The Lord enables people to seek him, and for those that don't seek him, he just lets them be who they are. He lets them harden themselves by simply letting them be who they are. So that's one of the... um, Yes, Barb, back there. I'm not trying to be contrary, but I want to process your saying natural inability is not taught in Scripture. So like in Ephesians 2, 1, where it says you are dead. Yes. In your trespasses and sins. Isn't that like as natural of a state of inability as you could have? Yes, it is. um, And what I mean by natural isn't the idea of that... um, I'm using naturally different than you are. You're using natural inability there to say in our unaided state, and you're correct. I'm using it to refer to innate abilities, uh, physical abilities. Again, the idea of um, we're supposed to bench press a 1,000 pounds and no human being can do that or what have you. Um, It's that kind of natural inability that I'm referring to. Um, Yeah, Bob, do you have something to help there? Well, interestingly, yesterday and this morning I was digging through looking for this book. Yeah. And I found a note I'd made a long time ago about natural and moral inability that I had jotted down. Yeah. And I had got an email a couple days ago from a Jonathan Edwards scholar we met up in Canada, uh, Bruce Davidson. Yes. And I made a note I need to contact him and have him explain again Edwards, uh, Jonathan Edwards yeah. Really explicated that? Yeah, he did a good job. And uh, so God's in charge, because I'm, I'm reading that, mm. you're bringing it up. <laughs> well. The, the point is, 
The plan of salvation is designed for humans. Yeah. It's not designed for some uh, other kind of being. Right. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Right. The question is, why does anybody call on the name of the Lord and come to God on his terms? Yeah. So the thing that God is calling us to do is to search the scriptures, to preach the gospel, and some people will believe, but it's by grace alone. Yeah, amen. Okay, so no one can raise themselves from the dead. But if somebody says, believe the actual facts about what God actually did, raise Jesus from the dead, here's the evidence, here's the witnesses, here's everything, we're asking you to believe what's true. Why won't they do it? Well, that's the moral part of it. Yeah. But asking somebody to believe what's, act, what's true and it's not a fairy tale, it's not myth, it's what God did. Why did those guards go take money to lie about it? Yeah. Because their moral condition. That's right. But they're capable of knowing what had actually happened. Right. Now, you could argue whether those distinctions are real, but I think they are. Absolutely, and I think Romans 10 proves that. I, so, Barb, the natural inability when it comes to Romans, or excuse me, Ephesians 2.1, that we're dead, you're, you're absolutely right that in our natural state, we're dead in our transgressions, but how are we dead? Are we dead in the sense that we can't perceive the words entering into our ears, or are we dead in the sense that we perceive what God is saying, but we're morally opposed to it? So what I would say is it's the latter, and that's what Romans 10 seems to prove, is that God, even in Moses' day in Deuteronomy 30, he wasn't asking them to do something that was impossible for the human being physically to accomplish. He, they didn't have to descend into the abyss or go into the heavens, but simply believe the word. So the reason they didn't believe the word was because of the hardness of their heart. They didn't like what God was saying. They, they wanted to remain in their sin. And that's the way it is with us. So that's the distinction that I think we see in Romans 10. So yes, we're dead in our transgressions. And by the way, sin does affect every aspect of our, our being. It affects our minds and how we reason. It certainly does. But the core issue isn't one where we don't understand or perceive what God is saying in the sense that he's speaking Chinese, we don't understand English, so I'm off the hook, therefore. But rather, it's a moral inability. And so that death that we have is a moral one in, in Ephesians 2, 1, etc. So, yeah, I hope, does that help? Yeah. Very good. Yeah, Brian. Quick, short testimony that relates to this is... <clears throat> I'm in jail and have never read the Bible, and all I had there in jail was the Bible. So I start reading the Bible, and I was not searching. I w it was just boredom, okay? I had nothing else to do. So I start at the very beginning of the Bible, and I'm reading it. And I believe when I look back that these were seeds being planted. I'm hearing God's word, okay? But then years went by, and I'm a horrible person. Bob knows the story. But, okay, but anyway, later, a, a, a Christian woman was giving me Old Testament prophecy relating to yeah. New Testament prophecy. And again, I, I wasn't 
I, I'm not going to use the word searching right. because I was just, you know, I liked her and I was, I wanted to keep talking with her and the, the conversation that we would have was due to the Old Testament prophecy relating to the New Testament. Yes. Uh, and, and that was by the hearing of God's word, that's how you become saved. Yeah. And, and that's what happened to me. I wasn't, I wasn't out looking for anything. I wasn't searching for God. Right. It's just something that, that God did to me. Amen. Amen. Well said. That's a great testimony. And I could affirm the same thing in my own life. I saw an airplane crash when I was 19, and a family died, and God got my attention at that point. I was gassing airplanes. I gassed a Cessna 310. They're going out to buy a little puppy in South Dakota, and I saw them crash on takeoff, and they all died. And i never forget, I had to go give testimony to the National Transportation Safety Board. And what really imp was, imp I don't want to use the term impressive in the sense of a good thing, but there was an impression left upon me as a 19-year-old to see the family bent back in their seats, and they've already burned to death. And um, I don't mean to be graphic, but I just want you to understand that that was really traumatic, that I just shook their hands and um, wished them a great day getting their puppy just minutes earlier, and they were gone. And God used that providentially, seeking me to say, hey, wake up, dum-dum. You're not going to live forever either. And what do you think is really true? You think truth is determined by what you believe? Or should you believe what's true? And that's what came to my mind. And in much the same way, I was convinced by the truth of the scriptures when God had broken my heart. It was a heart issue. I didn't want to perish. And, uh, but God breaks our heart, and he changes us morally, where for the first time we perceive the goodness of his gospel. I want that. I don't want to perish. And uh, Bob, you mentioned last week your own conversion. It happens. And you know, God does it miraculously. And by the way, for those of you that come to faith over time, that's okay. We don't always know the date. By the way, I didn't come to faith that day. It was later. Uh, by the way, God used, interestingly enough, a German Luftwaffe pilot, a guy who flew against my grandpa. And the guy comes out and gives me the gospel. He had a ministry to the Jews. And uh, his name was Alfred Hauser. By the way, he had a dog, was a schnauzer. <laughs> but he was a great man of, of faith. And uh, he, he preached the gospel to me. So here I see an airplane crash and a German Luftwaffe pilot preaches the gospel. So God seeks us. We don't seek after him. And that's one of the points here in the book of Proverbs is the seeking after wisdom is implied that God is the one who's doing it. So we have to unpack all of our theology to understand what's being stated. Yes, I'm sorry, I saw Levan. Oh, and, and Laverne. Was it both at the same time? Oh, very good. It's... L and L, we're back to... Oh, I'm sorry, Carly. Um, you saw... Oh, very good. You see Laverne, and then we got LaVon. We have to stop doing this, LaVon. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, when you were talking, I was thinking about the... In terms of uh, the relationship we have with the Spirit, but the para-relationship whereby before we're saved, the Spirit is wooing us because none comes to the Father without unless God decides that we should sure. come. But so it just occurred to me that in that time that the, the Spirit is speaking to us outside of us, 
telling us we need to repent, we need a Savior, then all of those circumstances in our lives help bring us to the realization of that. And then when we finally say, yes, I agree, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, that's when the Spirit comes in and and ministers in a different way. So I just thought that the para-relationship where the Spirit is walking alongside, wooing us, and all of those circumstances are happening. Laverne, very good question. Um, let's go back to John 6, 44, because I hear that you were kind of alluding to that in your own mind, too, and you probably have that in your mind, where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And one of the debates in that passage in John six forty four is over the term draw. Uh, some people will claim that that's a wooing. So Jesus, make no mistake about it, he's talking about inability. He's not talking about permission. For when he says no one can, the term can is dunamai. It's the term for power or ability. So he's literally saying no one has the ability to come to me unless the Father draws him. What's interesting is that term draw, um, I remember R.C. Sproul was in a debate with a man, and this theologian claimed that the drawing was a wooing. And just something we want to be careful about is that the, the verb elkuo is used elsewhere for drawing a sword out of a scabbard. And the reason that's significant, it's, in fact, it's used quite often in the New Testament for the drawing of a sword and the point that R.C. Sproul made with that, I think it was an astute one, is that you don't woo your sword, you draw it. Um, this theologian that he was debating, ironically, he said, well, or interestingly, I should say, he said, well, yes, El cool could be used for drawing water from a well. And R.C. Sproul said, well, you don't stand at the top of the well and say, come on, water. <laughs> you got to drag it out. So the point of that verb is that elkua is something that God is involved with in a hands-on way. So the drawing of the sinner is what regeneration is to the point where he takes a dead disposition that hates the things of God and he changes it so that we can believe. And that's why the, the, the power of John 3 is Jesus is... I'm sorry? Oh, I thought somebody said something. In John 3, remember when he says you must be born from above in order to see the kingdom of God? What we're claiming is in the order salutis of salvation, regeneration is prior to faith. So God enables you to believe, and therefore you believe. So that's what regeneration is by the Spirit. And so always remember John 6, 44, el kuo, that verb. In fact, if you do a, a word search, you'll see that it's used of drawing a sword from the scabbard in numerous places in the New Testament. That shows us that it's more than a wooing. It's actually where God is hands-on in changing the disposition of the sinner. So how does he harden the unregenerate? He just lets us be who we are. He's hands-off. But when it comes to his elect, he's hands-on and he regenerates us, enabling us to believe more than a wooing, literally he has to change us. Does that help, Laverne? Yes, that's what I would claim. And one of the passages that I think proves that is um, Romans 8.30, for those whom he predestined, he called. For those whom he called, he justified. For those of them he justified, he also then glorified. And so the predestined and the calling are prior to the justification at conversion. All the verbs are aorist, past tense. It's all done in God's eyes. But Bob and I will often talk when it comes to the calling, there's a distinction between the universal call, where yes, anyone can believe, it's open to everyone. But in Romans 8.30, it's not a universal call, it's an effectual call that's only for those who have been predestined. And that's why Bob, even last week in that sermon he gave, 
Remember, the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Remember, to the Jew, it's a scandal. To the Greek, it's a stumbling block. But to the called, both Jews and Greeks, it's the power and wisdom of God. The calling there is the effectual calling. And so that occurs prior to justification by faith, that effectual call. Yeah, very good, very good. So that's the, the, that he uh, foreknew those whom he predestined. So what's interesting about foreknowledge is the Arminian position typically is that God looks down the corridor of time, he sees who's going to choose him, and on that basis he chooses them. The, the, the problem with that view is foreknowledge, prognosco, is used with respect to having a saving, uh, a pre-existing love for someone. And let me give an example of knowledge when it has to do with an intimate love. Think about like in Genesis 4.1 where it says Adam knew his wife. We don't take that knowledge as just something mere mental, like he could pick her out in a lineup. You know, there's five women, I, that's my wife right there. No, he was intimate with her. And in the same way, God in his foreknowledge of the elect knows us in an intimate way that he doesn't know the unregenerate. That's what's being stated. And the proof of that is, I, if I remember correctly, I think it's in Hebrews, where Jesus is called the prognosco, the one that God foreknew. So certainly because Jesus was always with God the Father from the beginning, it can't simply mean that God the Father had knowledge of his son. I know who that is. But, or saw what Jesus was going to do. But rather it has to do with this intimate love that he had with the son for eternity. So in the same way, before eternity began, because you're of the elect, if you're a believer in Christ, he had a love for you that he didn't have for others. And another great text that proves this is, remember in Romans 9, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And the analogy shows that they were chosen, Jacob was and not Esau, prior to anything they had done, Paul says, so that it would stand by God's grace, not by man's choice. I'm paraphrasing somewhat. But that's in Romans chapter 9. So Jacob and Esau is, an ev- is evidence that it wasn't based on what human beings do. It's based on purely God's good desire. So I hope that helps that this foreknowledge isn't God looking down the corridor of time, but rather it has to do with choosing beforehand to be in an intimate, loving relationship with the elect that he isn't with other people. And there's been some um, very good scholarly work done by men like... Um, Thomas Schreiner, to that effect, who wrote a wonderful commentary on uh, the book of Romans. Um, He's done some good work. Another man named Douglas Moo, who's actually a Lutheran scholar, has done some really good work, too, on that. So those are resources I could get to you that may may help in that regard. But does does that help a little bit with the foreknowledge idea? Um, I know there's quite a bit to chew on there. Absolutely. So both, both are true. But think about this, um, Laverne. When it says those whom he foreknew, it's a limited group, would it, would it not be? Because think about the, the logic of the text. For those whom he foreknew, he called. Or, excuse me. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. For those he predestined, he called. For those he called, he justified. For those he justified, he also then glorified. It's all done. Well, we know from Matthew 7, wide is the path that leads to destruction. So the majority of the people on the planet are heading to destruction 
They're not part of that group. But when it says, for those whom he foreknew, well, doesn't God know what everyone's going to do? And certainly he does, right? But this is a group that he foreknows in a different way. Not just that they will choose him. It doesn't say that in the text, because rather it says, for those whom he foreknew, he called. And it's that calling that he enables to believe. Um, that's why in the First Corinthians passage, Bob was talking about the message, is, the message of the cross is foolishness to the Jew. It's actually a stumbling block to the Jew, and it's foolishness to the Greek. But to the called, it's the power and wisdom of God. And so the calling, therefore, has to do with what God does. Does that make sense? So the foreknowledge has to do with God loving his elect in a way that he doesn't love the unregenerate. But the universal call goes out to everyone. It really does. We can proclaim the gospel knowing that God will use it to save the elect. Yeah, Dana. Oh, we'll get a microphone to you. Oh, I'm sorry, LeVon. I'm sorry. I lost track. Yeah, um, I would... And then just turn it on. Oops, I'm sorry. It's, I don't think it's on. There we go. Okay. I, <laughs> I just recently read this awesome interpretation of the prodigal son. And when you're talking about, you know, God's wooing us and, and how the great love, if you are predestined, no matter what that prodigal son did, he was there to bring him back. Amen. And um, when I read this, I've always considered that when the prodigal son came to his senses and returned back to the father, that is the time when he repented. But the way this author talked about it is the father was always going down the street as far as he could away from his home looking for the son, waiting for the son to come back. Yeah. And... Um, it's when the son realized the, his father's great love that, that no matter what he had done, the father was there to take him back. Yeah. That's, um, that is grace personified. Yes. Amen. Well said, um, LaVon. Very good. Can I yeah, summarize yeah, something? Uh, I've spent decades interacting with people about yes. this. It is not what... It's just not what people want to believe or think yeah. or it's how we look at it. Um, someone that's very well known, I spent four hours in the airport. Yeah. And saying, he was saying to me, where it says, none seek for God. Yeah. He said, well, you have to balance that with the verses that say people sought God. Hmm. And I was trying to explain to him. Well, that's not a balance. That's a contradiction. Yeah. Okay? And contradictions are meaningless. That's right. As a matter of fact, in our lost, alienate condition, the gospel offends us, whoever we are. Yeah. But God's commanded us to preach it. And what's really helpful is just, if something doesn't make sense, believe what God said has to be true. Yeah. And... Preach the gospel accurately, whoever we are, whatever our theology. Amen. And what will happen is some people, by God's grace, using his means, we may be made alive. Amen. Um, if wooing was true, and I don't want to be mean to anybody, but 
Yeah. One guy was really mad about that decades ago. Look at Saul of Tarsus. Where's the wooing? Right. Right. He was ready to kill everybody who believed. But Amen. get it right with the universal call, and the effectual call will take care of itself because we don't know who the Amen. elect are. Amen. God does, we don't. Exactly right. Well said. Yes, Dana's got something. I want to hear Dana. I'm sorry, would you mind? I'm, I'm, I'm strung up. <laughs> sorry. I'm, I'm lanyard. Just going back to the Oops, I'm sorry, it's not on. There we go. Just going back to the folly of the child. Yeah. One thing that can seem like a contradiction in Scripture, but it's really not, is throughout Proverbs, we're, we're warned about all of the foolishness of the child. And yet, in the New Testament, Jesus says, except you become as little children, you're not going to see the kingdom. Well, the difference is understanding the distinction between being childlike and childish. That's right. As Christians, we want to be childlike. We want to have the positive attributes of a child, of being trusting, of being dependent. But yeah, we don't want to be childish, you know, being self-centered, not caring about other people. So that's an important distinction to understand about being childlike versus childish. Amen. Thank you, Dina. And a big issue with that is with the children in, in the, like the book of Matthew, do not forbid the children to come unto me unless you become like a child, do not see the kingdom of God. One of the issues was children didn't have any status in the eyes of the Israelites. And so the idea is that if you are going to be a disciple of Christ, you have to be one who is like one who doesn't care about their status as well, right? So it's a status issue. So exactly what Dana is saying is that the child in Proverbs is different than the child that Jesus is talking about in a different way in the Gospels. Yes, Peter. Eric, from an Arminian perspective, why is there a desire to have man's role in that, in their own salvation versus our doctrine of election? Where does that come from, their interpretation of Scripture or their need to participate in their own salvation? You know, I think we don't always know. Some people are genuinely wrestling with the, the Scriptures and just trying to understand them. Um, others perhaps maybe have a, a different motivation. The, the, the one passage I want everyone to just think about just as we depart here is remember the rich young ruler? Jesus says to the disciples that it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is an impossibility. Don't buy into the argument that the eye of a needle was the part of a, a Middle Eastern wall. That's not it. it was, he's talking about a needle that we know as a needle today. So he was describing something impossible and the disciples caught wind of that. They said, well, then how is it that anyone is saved? And Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So for the natural man, it is impossible to be saved. That's what's being taught about by Jesus. So the point is it has to be an act of God that we're saved. And um, we'll, we'll just leave it at that for the sake of time. But thanks for the great discussion. I love this. What, what fun. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you seek after us that you've made the promise that you would seek and save that for which was lost, Lord. And we do thank you, Lord, that you are the one who regenerates dead sinners to bring them to faith. And we do thank you, Lord, for the wisdom that you give through your word that we may live uh, righteous lives, lives that are pleasing to you. I do pray that you would give us wisdom and your perseverance for this difficult time in our country and in the world today. And I do pray, Heavenly Father, for the sermon today for Bob, and for all of us that we would have ears to hear the word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.